welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. In this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss life after the bench, the rules in their states related to ending judicial service, challenges to those rules, and Michigan Chief Justice Bridget McCormick makes a very special announcement. The Lady Justices share their personal views on the many avenues one can serve their state through judicial service. Making way for this generation and the next generation is a crucial step in moving state Supreme Courts forward. Our Lady Justices detail the importance of making way for others to have the opportunity to sit on the bench as a way to have a more diverse state and national Supreme Court. In fact, Chief Justice McCormick shares her hopes for an African-American woman to step into her seat one day. Today, the Lady Justices discuss how age plays a significant role for a judge or justice in some states, while others have no retirement requirements, term limits, or age restrictions. Finally, the lightning round gets personal when the Lady Justices share their fears around retirement, what excites them about their futures in judicial service, their recent playlist, and what books are on top of the pile on their nightstands. What's in store for Lady Justice? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. I'm Bridget McCormick. I'm the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court and really very happy to be together again with my friends who I miss, Beth Walker from the West Virginia Supreme Court and Rhonda Wood from the Arkansas Supreme Court. It is great to see you both. Today, we're going to talk about life after the bench. There are uh, different rules in different states about ending judicial service. And I mean by that, rules that govern requiring the end of judicial service. Some require a judge to retire by a certain age. Some in the federal courts, there's a very specific retirement rule. And we're going to talk today about the different rules in our states and some of our own thoughts about this topic. We're also going to talk a little bit about whether there have been challenges to those rules in our different states. Part of the conversation is going to be personal. As you may have heard, I announced recently that I'm going to retire from the bench by the end of this calendar year. It's not a decision I made lightly, and it wasn't required by Michigan law. I'm not 70 years old yet, but rather I felt like it was the right time for a number of reasons, which I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to be eager to hear from my friends about the kinds of things they think they would like to do after their judicial service ends, whenever that is. So starting with the factual background, Michigan requires that once a judge has turned 70, she can finish her term, whatever whatever the term is that she's in, and the terms are different for the different courts. Uh, The Michigan Supreme Court, we serve eight-year terms, and the other courts, judges serve six-year terms. But if you turn 70 in the middle of a term, you can finish that term, but then you cannot run for re-election. Once you are 70, finish out your term and then head off into retirement. What is the rule in Arkansas, Rhonda? Right. So first, it's good to be back with you guys and see you. And um, so in Arkansas, the rule is it's similar. So you can finish your term when you're 70, however long that may be, and It's not a prohibition in a sense, but if you start a new term after, once you turn 70, you forfeit your retirement. And so the way it works is any retirement you've paid in, you would get back, but 
once you retired, if you had started that term after 70, you would not get any benefits from the retirement system. So it is forfeited. So it is sort of a choice you'd have to make with pretty dire consequences. Incentives, I see. Beth, what's the rule in West Virginia? So hello, it is wonderful to see you all uh, again. It always makes my day to chat with you. And we don't have a role in West Virginia. And thank you for your little bit of background research because now I know we are one of 16 states that don't have retirement uh, requirements. So we neither have term limits nor age limits. So of course that then creates its own challenges and something we do, those of us who, those of us states who don't have these limits, of course, have to deal with the same thing that sometimes comes up in the federal judiciary, and that is when folks who love their jobs want to serve in them forever and don't always recognize the limitations when their capacity starts to change. And there are challenges with that. And folks, you know, and how do you uh, deal with someone whose physical or mental situation starts to interfere with their ability to judge? But that's a whole nother conversation. But to compare with you all, um, I guess I can serve forever if I want, if I could get elected over and over for our, we have 12 year terms. And of course our trial judges are eight year terms. Our family court judges are six year terms and our magistrates are four year terms. So with those limits, uh, we do not have age limits. Well, I have no doubt that you could be elected forever. So if that's what you decide to do, I am very confident you can do it. And I should have added a little bit of that background research before I dove into our individual states. But as Beth said, 16 states have no retirement requirements at all. 20 states require retirement either at the end of the term in which reaches the age of 70 or sooner. Five states have a maximum age of 75. And one state, Vermont, has an age limit of 90. So I guess in Vermont, 90 is the new 70. And it makes me think uh, Vermont would be kind of a fun place to live. And what I, I love, I love their optimism in Vermont. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I support it, honestly. Um, it's a really interesting, I think, set of questions because on the one hand, I've had a lot of people ask me since I announced I was retiring, whether it's unfair to the public to have to give up the experience that I've gained, like, that there's something to be said for, you know, after you serve for 10 years, you've learned a lot and you can contribute some things that a, a brand new justice won't be able to. And I see that. I do think there is something to be said about experience. And on the other hand, I've said over and over again in, in lots of public statements I've made about stepping down that I think there is a real benefit to making way for new voices, at a, especially in a multi-member court where I think any single person can actually change the dynamic and almost always in a good way when it's a new person. And I think there's some obligation for leaders, not just in courts, but in, in general of my generation to make some way for the next generation. And I, I do think there's something to be gained for that. So I I like Vermont's uh, optimism and I have mixed feelings about whether a judge should serve until she's, until she's 90. So let's move on to whether anyone has ever challenged these rules in your states. I guess, Beth, has there been any advocacy or group that's interested in imposing a retirement age in West Virginia, or is it just not something anyone focuses on or thinks much about? Believe it or not, although there are a number of other things that come up politically, this has not. I and mean, I even asked around a little to say, well, is there something I'm missing? Is there some kind of discussion? Um, and there really has not been. So I guess 
nothing to report. I think the litigation is really interesting because then, it, you know, the essence of age discrimination laws, which I used to do a lot of, is, you know, what are the essential functions? What are the bona fide occupational qualifications of what we do? And does, you know, is age defensible under those laws? So as much as I'm fascinated by it, we haven't had any litigation here. Interesting. How about in Arkansas, Rhonda? Yeah, so I guess... Really in 2018 and 20, we lost probably at least a third of our judiciary. And mainly that was because of the age 70 um, rule. And so in 2016, there was a pretty large group of them that got together and they filed litigation over it. Some were being impacted right then, but most of them saw it coming in, you know, 18 and 20 election cycle. And so it came to the court in 16 when I was on the court. Um, It was pretty tense because one of the justices that was a member of our court had announced the only reason he wasn't running again was because of this 70 rule. Um, But he did not recuse. So that was interesting. And on our court, and we had another justice whose next term was going to be impacted on whether they could run. And we have a small judiciary, so we sort of knew everyone impacted um, by the 70 rule, which, you know, you have to sort of set aside all of that and that, you know, and you understand their sort of personal desire to serve and their issues. But we did not find it violated equal protection because our legislature, when it had passed quite a while ago, had expressed a rational basis for providing what we, you talked about, Bridget, opportunities for younger attorneys to serve on the bench. And they had maintained a provision for retired judges to serve in limited capacity following that their retirement. There was this under-inclusiveness argument because a judge could serve beyond 70 and complete a term, but could not start a term at 70. And we've said, you know, it doesn't have to, the classification doesn't have to be perfect. (laughs) And so we threw that out. There was also a due process argument because judges make mandatory retire, you know, payments. It's mandatory to the retirement system that then they couldn't benefit from. But because the monies were refunded, if you choose not, then that didn't hold up either. And then there was also a challenge that it created an additional qualification for judicial office under the Constitution. Um, And again, we did not uphold that because the judge has a choice. They could still run. Once they turned 70, it was their choice on which way they wanted to go. So it was a tense time in the judiciary since we all sort of know each other in a small state, Um, but we moved past it. So what about you in in Michigan, Bridget? Yeah, there's been litigation in Michigan recently, in in fact, in, in state court and in federal court. So a judge on the Court of Appeals who had been serving there since 1994 was going to be prohibited for running for re-election in 2018. That was when his term would be up because he would have reached the age of 70. And so what he wanted to do and tried to do was he tried to run in 2016 against another judge, but he wanted to be able to use his his title, his incumbency in that mm-hmm. election, even though he was really running as a challenger. And, and in Michigan, mm-hmm. the incumbents get the designation on the ballot that says, his case, it would have said judge of the Court of Appeals. And, you know, in the Supreme Court, it says justice of the Supreme Court. So he wanted to take that incumbency designation to his challenger position and had to litigate that 
and he lost that claim in the lower courts and, and the Supreme Court denied leave, avoiding dealing with that one. So he completed his term in 2018 and took on a new job in, in 2019. He's an assistant prosecutor in a northern Michigan county now. So he obviously uh, wanted to keep working and more power to him, but the challenge didn't work. There have been more than one challenge in the federal courts, but there was a recent one and it was an age discrimination claim based on Michigan's limit of 70. And the Sixth Circuit ended up ruling that Michigan's requirement that you retire after age 70 does not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. So so that's that's where we landed. But we've also had interest from the legislature on this topic. And even recently, there have been lots of efforts in the legislature to respond to the age limit over the years. It's, it's always kind of hard to figure out who's driving them. But even this year, there is a resolution, I think it's still stuck in committee, to raise the constitutional age from 70 to 80. I know that that Court of Appeals judge who tried to run against a colleague did testify in support of it, at least in the committee, in, in the Judiciary Committee. But I think it's kind of stalled. Um, it's stalled there, and it probably won't go anywhere this legislative cycle. There's not very many days left. Our leg- We got a new legislature in January. H- have you all seen any interest for your legislature on this topic? How about in Arkansas, Rhonda? Yeah. So after our lawsuit, I mean, after that was sort of resolved, then there was the next session, you know, some people that tried to sort of move to change the statute and at least raise it to 72 or even 74. That really didn't get anywhere. Even if it was filed, I don't think it even got out of committee. In Arkansas, at least, it seems like whenever that happens, it's not really been that there's been a real thoughtful decision process about, you know, should we really do that, you know, in light of um, people retiring later and, all, you know, just in the general business world and everything and age, it seems like it's more special, like a few, you know, people that either no judges that they want to be able to serve longer trying to raise it, or sometimes it's been in Arkansas's past that they know judges that they want off the bench and they try to, you know, lower it. But it seems those are the motivations rather than, you know, a real sort of deliberate thought process behind it. What about West Virginia? It sounds like this is just not a topic that makes the radar at all, but I'm interested. Has the legislature ever talked about it? Not really that I've been able to figure out. So where most of the political play is, I guess, so to speak, and sort of another component of this discussion that we haven't touched on yet is our judicial pension, you know, the judicial retirement plan. So when there was a big realignment of our judiciary in 1974, they created a separate judicial that we call JERS, the Judicial Employee Retirement System. And it operates, it has a separate set of terms, separate set of benefits, from the regular PERS, public employment retirement system. And it was created at the time because the state couldn't pay judges much. And it created a judicial retirement system that was more generous, generally speaking. I mean, not in every single circumstance, but mostly more generous than the regular public employment retirement. And so there's always a question when people are in and out of public service, in and out of judicial service, What is the term of the judicial retirement? For example, I won't qualify for judicial retirement after a 12-year term. I would have to somehow find four more years of public 
employment or be reelected and serve up to 16. So what they've done politically is adjust the statute as to what the terms of the retirement is. And, you know, a generous retirement, first of all, serves as an incentive for people to retire that an age limit doesn't, you know, because it's a hard line. Whereas if you know you're going to, for example, depending on your category in judicial retirement, you could earn in pension up to 75% of what the current judge salary is. And that can be an incentive for people to say, well, I don't have to work and I can receive this pension once I receive, you know, once I get to a qualifying age and I've met all the requirements, obviously there are hurdles to jump through, but it's another part of the discussion. And that's really where all the political adjustment has occurred over time or the attention of the legislature is on the judicial retirement. For example, last year, the, they added the family court judges to uh, eligibility to judicial retirement for the first time since the family court judges were created a number of years ago. And that was a, a big political development. That's just an example of a, another way that I suppose this whole discussion is affected. Yeah, that's interesting. It, and makes a lot of sense. It's those incentives that can really make a difference, even if you don't change the age. In, in Michigan, there used to be a pension system. And I think it, it was long before I joined the court that it, the state changed that and went to just a regular 401k retirement savings plan. But the ju- there are still some judges on the bench. I have one colleague who started on the bench in 1995. So he is in the pension system. And it sounds similar to West Virginia. I think they, I think the folks in the pension system get about 70 or 75% of their salary as a pension. And so there are different incentives for judges in that system than the ones in the 401k system. So I bet that's right. That might be where a lot of the interesting work gets done on retirement. But moving away from the rules, the background rules to what it looks like, a lot of judges think of their judicial service as the capstone or kind of the final chapter of a legal career, at least at least traditionally, I think that was how it was thought of. It might be changing a little bit. It's at least in the federal appointments, it seems like the last few administrations have all looked for pretty junior folks because they they, of course, in the federal courts, they have life tenures, they can serve as long as they want. And the, the federal system is interesting in another way. They have this rule that you can take senior status at age 65 if you've served at least 15 years. If you haven't, there's this combined age and service requirement of 80. But senior judges in the federal system can choose to take a reduced workload, which can be significantly reduced, but they still get staff and can serve at, on some cases, which I assume would be intellectually satisfying but they continue to get their full salary even while taking senior status. But it creates a vacancy for a new appointment, which is why a lot of them do it. And I think they time their taking of senior status depending on who's in the White House. And I know some state systems have a a similar way of thinking about judicial retirement. What about in West Virginia? Do you have a, a senior status category, Beth? Can you continue to serve as a judge even if you retire? So yes, we do. We have what we call cleverly senior status judges at all of the levels, you know, magistrates, family court judges, trial judges, intermediate court judges. I didn't mention them before. They're brand new, of course, and Supreme Court justices. And we set the Supreme Court as the administrator of our unified judiciary. I know all of our states are not that way. We make the rules about it and we really just require 
that the person not be practicing law. And so, you know, if you retire and presumably, and most of the folks in this category are going to be folks who retire with some level of pension eligibility, all they have to do is is not be practicing law. Obviously, that makes sense. And be willing to take appointments to senior status roles. And so it's not a fixed you have an office and a desk and a, it's very much just a status where you're available to serve if there are needs such as a case in a particular area where a judge is recused herself and it needs attention or and nobody else can do it. Or maybe it involves somebody where all the judges in the area uh, are recused. If, for example, we have a judge suspended, we'll have a senior status judge go and take over that docket for a period of time. They're paid on a daily basis by statute to do whatever it is we do. And so they fill in. I mean, they essentially, and they're really crucial, frankly, and we don't have enough senior status judges. You know, we do from time to time have, you have folks, you know, who might be ill and can't and need to be away for a little while. Of course, that's not unique to age, but uh, the probabilities happen that way. And so it's really important, actually, our senior status judge. And we often, when you're the chief, you're the person who looks for the senior status judge who's willing to serve and appoints them to those roles. And you're really in, in the chief role, which I'm glad to do again in January, really glad to have folks who are willing to do it. We don't really have that many who do. So that's our, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's our senior status judge. How about Arkansas? Yeah. So it sounds like we're pretty similar. It's constitutionally based for us. So it says that any retired judge or justice can serve in Similarly, so if there's a vacancy because of a suspension or something along that line, or sometimes it's a matter of judges, just we send them out to like the National Judicial College two-week course, you know, general jurisdiction course, or that with COVID, there's a backlog and some of the counties were worse than others. And so we'll bring in retired, um, we don't sort of have a title or any restrictions, even that they are practicing law. Um, obviously, I guess we haven't really had that be an issue yet that's come up. They, you know, couldn't be, I guess our constitution says that you can't be practicing law when you're a judge. So I guess they couldn't really have a caseload during that period of time, I would assume. We haven't had that challenge. But so it's pretty critical that there's lots of times or, a, you know, we had one judge that like suddenly had to have open heart surgery, you know, and so you know, we need someone to step in. And then at the Supreme Court, we we have so many ballot and petition challenges for election matters. And sometimes those are end up being, they're directly filed with us and there ends up being questions of fact. And so that's what we appoint retired um, judges. We utilize them as special masters. And so we'll appoint them and they'll have like a three, four day hearing and decide the question of fact. The same thing with an office of professional conduct. If there's a sort of a, a challenge that they want to have a trial, then we usually appoint a retired judge to actually do the initial trial of the and finding a fact in a dispute before it would come further to us. So we use them a lot in Arkansas. What about you, Bridget? Sounds pretty similar to both of you all. We appoint senior judges, retired judges to cover dockets that need covering. So a particular court has a judge out for an illness or 
you know, God forbid, suspended based on a judicial tenure investigation, or a chief judge thinks better given something that's going on for that judge to put a docket aside, we will be able to plug a senior judge in. They're also paid just a daily rate. And so there are some who I think will serve as many days as we are willing to appoint them and others who like to do it now and again, but full time, you know, they, they took retirement seriously. But there are judges who retire and do completely different things. They, they don't put themselves in the senior judge rotation quickly and just want to keep doing that. There are lots of judges in Michigan who retire and become arbitrators and mediators. And that I think is a somewhat common path. I have had colleagues retire and go back into private practice, a number of them in recent years. And we've seen actually a little bit of that in the federal system recently, even long before they were retirement age, instead of going senior, they've gone into, into private practice and seen that in, in other states as well. In California, the, the chief justice announced her retirement, I think at the end of August or maybe the beginning of sub- September. And she said she has no idea what she's going to do next. Um, she's feels that's the first time she's ever said that in her whole career. And, and she has a lot of anxiety about it, but she was going to just take her time and, and figure it out. And I think the chief justice of Oregon announced her retirement just, just last week. And I don't know what she has in store. And the chief justice of New York announced her retirement in August without saying what her plans are. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine on the California Supreme Court Justice Quaylar, Tino Quaylar, he announced a retirement quite early, and he's, I think, in his 50s. And he became the president of the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace, which is a pretty interesting next job. Um, So I I see people retiring to do all, all kinds of different things. I feel like perhaps more and more lately, but that's not empirical. That's just, you know, Mm -hmm. me telling you what my gut says. What do your peers do when they retire? What, What do folks in in West Virginia do? Do most of them serve as senior judges or are they leaving to do other things, Rhonda? What are you seeing? Do you see any trends? In West Virginia, it's kind of, I think it's following your sort of sense of, you know, things are changing a little bit. You know, we have a number of folks who've done the traditional thing. My colleague, Justice Margaret Orkren, completed her term at the end of 2020. And um, I think she asked to serve as senior status to allow her to perform marriages, but she's not interested in taking cases. So that's another little category of senior status we have to enable people to do those ceremonial things. Another former justice, Tom McHugh, stepped out from the court extremely well, uh, respected by both sides, and had a vibrant mediation practice for a number of years. So that's the alternative dispute resolution path that that you talked about. Well, even more recently, Justice Evan Jenkins, who you both met, had served in Congress, was appointed to the court, served on the court for a little under four years, and then decided he wanted to go back to doing Uh, He went back to private practice and um, actually most recently took a job with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So that's very much an in and out, which I don't think is the traditional judicial model. Going back to what you said before about it being a capstone, it's sort of seen as you get there and you arrive and you serve and you then go off into the sunset. I don't think that that is necessarily always going to be the case. And I actually like that idea. I like that we have folks who bring in, go into what 
we've said over and over, different perspectives, different backgrounds, you know, changing things up a little, I don't think is ever a bad thing for the jobs that we do. What about you, Rhonda? What about Arkansas? I think for a long time in Arkansas, it really was that you became elected and you served as long as you could possibly stay through that, you know, 70, whatever it hit you, you know, if it, your term started at 69, you served till 77. And then after that, you left and you just became of counsel to affirm and, and really sort of dabbled. And the justices really didn't ever come back and serve as trial court judges sit as special and do things that the retired justices really didn't do that as much, maybe as special masters. And then the first person that really broke and really the only one I can think of that broke the barrier was the first elected female was Justice Annabelle Ember Tuck. And she retired early after like into her second term. And she just really went full force with access to justice and civics education. And now she's really working on judicial well-being and doing sort of Friday afternoon chats um, with judges through COVID. And she's sort of, you know, been our little Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, in Arkansas and really just given back and just stepped down and, you know, given back to Arkansas. But other than that, it really, it's kind of, I'm, I'm curious to what you say, Bridget, but I, I really think that there was sort of a shift maybe in the last decade of maybe some younger people becoming elected to the bench. And I'm wondering too, if it's even a female and that we're looking at things differently and we're not looking at it as a terminable career option, you know, and that we are looking at it as an opportunity and a wonderful experience and a way to serve our state, but we're not looking at it as the end of our career. What do you think, Bridget? It's a great transition to what was going to be my next topic, which is the most personal, uh, you know, in this, which is how do we all think about it? I may as well go first since I have in fact announced that I'll be retiring in in a few short weeks uh, by the end of the calendar year. And I am 56. I consider my term on the court as kind of the third chapter in a career. I had this my first chapter as a public defender, and then I served for a decade and a half in in academia, and now I've served for 10 years on the court, and I've really loved each chapter. They all gave me, I think, so much, and it's been an honor and a a privilege to be able to serve my state uh, in this capacity. But I wanted one more chapter for myself, and I personally do feel grateful to make way for for the next generation of leaders. Uh, Michigan is one of I think 27 states that have no, not a single person of color serving on the Michigan Supreme Court. And and yet we have a population that has over 20% people of color in our state. And I think there's something to the bench reflecting the public it serves. And we've never had a single African-American woman serve on the Michigan Supreme Court. And obviously I don't have any say in who the governor appoints to take my place, but I would not be surprised if uh, Michigan sees its first African-American justice, which uh, African-American woman to serve on the state Supreme Court. And that, I will feel pretty good about that if that's right. This is not a backhanded way to pressure the governor. Um, I just, I'm sure your governor is a, a frequent listener of the podcast. So. Oh yeah. This, I'm absolutely this may not be released, you know, by then, but I'm sure this is, we, 
I'm sure that she downloads this immediately once it comes out. Probably uh, listens and re-listens because she's, you know, might have been taking notes and missed something. Yeah, no doubt. Her chief of staff, I'm sure, like has a memo on her desk, you know, the morning after it gets released. Right. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But for my next chapter, I'm going to be the CEO and the president, the next CEO and president of the American Arbitration Association. So not doing arbitrations or mediations myself. Of course, AAA does a lot of them all over the country and all over the world. But in fact, just running this important, in my view, organization that really was founded almost 100 years ago to support the work of the courts. Because for lots of people and businesses, having alternatives to traditional adversarial dispute resolution is what makes sense. I'm pretty excited about it. I feel like I have a lot to learn because the organization is is large and uh, there are about 600 employees around the country and lots of different offices and, and an office in Singapore, but I'm excited about it. And I hope I can make a, a contribution in that role. But what about each of you? And I know that this could come uh, never or in a long time, but if you think about what you might do in the next chapter, what are your thoughts? Beth, why don't I start with you? Well, first of all, let me also address what for frequent listeners to the podcast may be an elephant in the room, and that is what about the podcast? And Bridget, we're so thrilled, and that's why we're so calm about this, and Ron and I don't sound upset, is because Bridget has agreed to stay on the podcast to the extent her schedule permits, and we'll just address it as we go along, um, because she's still and will always be uh, a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, comma, retired. So (laughs) still lots of insight to bring. So thank goodness for that. We're so happy, Bridget, that you've decided to do that. But anyway, getting that off the table, you know, as I finished my sixth year of a 12-year term, when you start a 12-year term, you can't even imagine what the end looks like because you're so happy to be there. And it seems like a long time away, but now I'm halfway there and I am 57 years old. And it doesn't seem like I'm going to be done at, at the end of six years from now. I mean, just from a done as in not working anymore. And so I have started to think a little bit, nothing significant. I mean, I've always said, I'll see what happens further on down the road as to whether I run or not. I've told a number of people. And so it's not like of any kind of breaking news that I sort of doubt I'll run again, but you never know. But the one thing, and this goes back to, I guess, Rhonda, your Sandra Day O'Connor reference, you know, the interesting thing about doing these jobs that the three of us have been so lucky to do is I've learned what else there is to be done. I mean, what other needs are out there, what, whether it's educational or, you know, there was mention of access to justice or, you know, something at the law school. There's just, I see so many projects that could benefit from the, the knowledge that I've been fortunate enough to get. And so it almost seems like I need to do something. And I don't know where that need is coming from. It's self-created, of course. But so I guess when you have the opportunity to sit at the tables we sit at, you know, you see how you can continue to make a difference. And so that's why I'm not at all surprised that coupled with your announcement, Bridget, that you're going to go on and do something else, some other really cool things, which is, of course, inspiring to those of us who aren't there yet. How about you, Rhonda? So I in December, complete my first eight-year term, but that's completing my 16th year judging, which is a really long time. And so I start year, I guess my first, second 
eight-year term. And I would be, I'm trying to remember, figure out if I will be 61 or 62 at that point. So, you know, it's, it's hard to envision eight years out, but to me, that seems like enough. I don't see myself sitting on the court worrying about the 70 and where that impacts me. <laughs> so I, I definitely have never seen it as this is where I would end my career. So I've always seen it as I will do something else. I just don't know what that else is. But I really do believe in giving the opportunity and opening that door to others. And I've never felt like I'm the only one that can do this job. And that I have always felt that others can do do this job and should have the opportunity to do this job. And then I'm fine with that. You know, when I, you know, left any of my positions, you know, in the trial court or whatever, and I was fine with someone going forward and, you know, doing that and doing it differently. So, you know, when that day comes, you know, I think that I will be happy, you know, and, and ready to hand it to the next generation, but it could be someone older than me, you know, but the next generation in the court in that sense, you know, but I am just thrilled for you, Bridget, and excited for your next chapter. And I envision a podcast episode that's all about arbitration and how that works in the court, because we have not covered that and how that works and uh, what, you know, the rules are and mediation. And so I think that would be a really interesting episode coming up. Looks like uh, we'll have to start planning for that one. Well, thank you both. I'm thrilled that you're uh, willing to keep me on because I love getting to talk with both of you and we'll still obviously have lots of thoughts about the topics that we like that we'll be talking about. So here's the fun part. We get to move to our lightning round. And I we usually do alphabetical order, but since I'm asking the questions, I think I'll go Beth, Rhonda, and then I'll finish if that works for both of you. Beth, what's the part of retirement that scares you the most? Um, I don't know that it's fear as much as just a recognition that things can change on a dime, you know, and you watch it. And I think that that, you know, creates sort of a, a gratitude on one hand that you, you are where you are. But then on another hand, it's like, well, are you making this worthwhile while you, <laughs> while you're there? So I think it's almost a little bit of pressure, I guess. So it's not fear. Yeah. Rhonda? So I, someone else told me this when they retired and I can see this is they said not being relevant um, and it's sort of relevant to what changing society and in sort of the role. And so I think that, you know, you've been so long in the judiciary and, and being able to sort of make that change and all of a sudden to not be, you know, as relevant in that role, I think that sort of bothers me. That's the hardest thing, I think, for me. For me, it's honestly just feeling a little bit worried about whether I'll be good at the next thing. I, I will confess that um, in 2012, the night I won my election, I cried a lot of the night, both because I was a little sad to be leaving a job I loved. I loved my last job. And I feel that way now, the, the sort of melancholy about leaving a job you love, but also worried about whether I'd be good at the next one. And it's worked out so far, but it doesn't mean I feel any more confident. So you'll have to check in with me. I don't know, a few months into the next job and see if I, if my worries have abated, but I guess my confession is I have pretty normal self-doubt, like probably lots of people do. So what about the aspect of it that excites you the most when you think about it, Beth? 
Uh, this one's pretty easy. Opportunity for unlimited playing of golf, I think was probably the most exciting. <laughs> Rhonda? I think in part, it's the ability to speak freely. There, there are a lot of things we are constrained from speaking about. So now it's exciting. <laughs> now the thing I'm most excited about is Rhonda retiring because I want Rhonda, <laughs> I want <laughs> to hear what I have to say. <laughs> I want it. I want to hear it all. <laughs> Mine is a little bit like Beth's. I'm, I'm just excited to have unlimited hours to ride my bike. I'd love to do long bike rides and find very few days where life now lets me fit that in. And so my husband and I are trying to time our retirements together eventually so that we can mm -hmm do long bike rides most days. So I'm excited about that. All right. What's the last song you downloaded, Beth? So it's going to sound like I concocted this for the podcast, but it's absolutely true. I was cruising around on something and I heard a Lizzo song that I decided I liked. I barely even know who Lizzo is, but about damn time. So I kind of like it. <laughs> Rhonda? So I, you guys know, I'm such a nerdy book person. And so I could not even fathom the last song that I downloaded. And so I looked on my phone and it said the last one was Ed Sheeran's album Equal in 2021. All right. I like, uh, I like both of those choices. And I would have answered this question differently last week, but since we're recording this today, for me, it's Taylor Swift's latest oh. album, which oh. was, you know, released at midnight on October 21st. And I happened to be with my family this weekend, uh, my siblings and their kids. And I would say half of us in the, we, were, we had rented a house together, half of us in the house uh, downloaded it the same night. So that's mine. What's the book on the top of the pile on your nightstand, Beth? So it's one that I just finished. And I think actually I was inspired to read it from Rhonda, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Majesty of the Law getting ready to go to a conference in Arizona where she'll be discussed. And I just read it and it's awesome. And really interesting how we try to talk about how times are so different now. She wrote that book just after, I think, 2000 or 2001, maybe right after 9-11. And it was rather prescient on a number of topics. Rhonda? So my assistant at the court, her husband, like randomly sends my husband and I books. We do this random book exchange and we send each other books, but he sent me Life Undercover, which is Amaryllis Fox. She went eight years, I probably said her name wrong, eight years undercover in the CIA in Iraq. And it's just really interesting. And to read, you don't really see too many written from the woman CIA operatives perspective. So I'm just getting into it, but that's it. I just finished, and so it's still there, the book 4,000 Weeks, which is a, I think the author refers to it as, he refers to himself as a time management addict in recovery. Um, and I thought, and I think you guys would both really like it. It okay. reminded me of our episode about our systems for managing our, the many parts of our jobs and our lives and how we do that. And uh, it's a really interesting take on all of that. 4,000 weeks is the number of weeks you'd live if you lived until you were 80. And most people, when they hear that, think like, oh gosh, that doesn't sound like very long at all, which it didn't to me. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm probably three quarters of the way through it if I live to 80. So it was a really interesting read. So interesting 
that I already started it again. Not It's one of these books that you can actually just read a chapter at a time or listen to whatever you prefer, because I felt like I read it with such a really high level of interest. But at the end of it, I felt like I didn't have a to-do list, which I think is probably a bad lesson to take from the book, but I'll let you read it and figure that out and tell me to stop with my looking for a to-do list out of out of a book that basically says, be in the moment. Well, it is great to talk to you both as always. And I will be really, really ready to listen to Rhonda Unplugged. Can't wait for that episode. <laughs> yeah. Thanks everybody for listening. That concludes this episode of Lady Justice Women of the Court. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice Women of the Court. To learn more about this episode, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Don't forget to share our show with a friend of the genre. Remember, the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.